on for you with regard to inquiry um, with listening? What are, what are questions that you brought today that we haven't covered? Um, what have we covered that you'd like to go a little bit deeper into? Is there something specific that's on your mind that we could take the next kind of uh, five to ten minutes and explore? So this is a chance for you to really... Yes. Mm -hmm. Sure. I think there's kind of three different um, ways that I respond when I see somebody or hear somebody in great despair. Um, my most basic response is to um, immediately kind of go towards metta. So the phrases that I use um, are, you know, me... X be happy, maybe they be free of suffering, you know, may they have ease of mind, may they be healthy. And so it's not that I have magical thinking. It's not that I think, oh, by repeating these phrases and this incantation and throwing a little fairy dust that they'll be better. But what I have noticed is that when I express metta towards someone that over a period of time, it seems to make a difference. So that's, that's one level. Um, another, yes, please. Do you do that during the session, like right when you're with the person? Yes, but not out loud. <laughs> <laughs> although, although, I mean, I'm working with somebody right now where they have a tremendous self-hatred. And... Um, very early on in the work that we were doing together, I um, told them what I was doing. I said that the, my response from my heart to the pain that you're in is that these phrases tend to arrive sponta uh, arise spontaneously. I'd like to share them with you. I'd like to write them down. And I'd like to recommend that you find either alternate phrases that kind of mean the same or that you try these out. Because I, I think that despair can be relieved in two ways. One is through your own self-compassion. And the other is um, recognizing that somebody is really genuinely interested in your suffering, the experience of that. So the second is kind of following the three points. The second is that when somebody's suffering, the natural reaction to suffering is aversion. I mean, most of us respond with, I really would prefer not to listen to you. How many of you can identify with that? It hurts. It just feels bad. A family member of mine has had very long, very, very long, painful um, experience with back surgeries and um, has been in constant pain for 10, 12 years. 
And I've noticed my, um, I guess I, I would say I've noticed the maturation of my metta and my co- and compassion by just looking at how I relate to him. That when this first was happening, I was very quick to solutions. Well, have you tried this? And here's a really good, you know, health practitioner, and there's a massage person, you know. And he was honest enough to just say, shut up. (laughs) You know, basically, I don't need your solutions. Over time, what I notice is that my aversion has turned to curiosity and that um, I go towards his suffering by exploring it with him. Like a question that I asked him a couple of weeks ago was, are there times when you're not in pain? He said, yeah, you know, there, there definitely are periods where I'm not in what I would call a seven. And so I consider that not to be pain. I said, well, when you're not in pain, what's your relationship to it? He said, well, I have a moment where I feel happy and then I ignore it. I said, well, actually, if you were to focus on the moments when you're not in pain and really be happy about not being in pain, that that would have, that would create a neurological groove of happiness with regard to the absence of pain, which is a very good balancing for being in pain. So that's an example of kind of turning towards what he's experiencing and exploring it with him. Well, tell me what it's like for you. And, you know, sometimes that sounds like a lot of complaining and sometimes it sounds like, you know, a lot of um, drama. To a person who's never been mostly in pain, that's what it looks like and sounds like. But that's his experience. And if I'm curious, then I want to know what his experience is. And then the third level is that there are times when it's just really appropriate to offer something tangible. Like if there's re- are there, if there are resources that you know about, don't just listen, you know. <laughs> Say, hey, did you know that there was such and such? And let me give you the website or the, you know. So there's a, there's a benefit to responding to suffering with concrete, tangible um, support. Does that help? Good. Good. Other, yes, please. I find it difficult to listen to people who are actively trying to hurt me um, <laughs> verbally, not, not physically, but verbally um, are so aversive toward me that they're trying to control me or trying to, uh, using a lot of passive aggressive. And is there a question? How do I listen? How do I stay present? And how do I protect myself in that kind of a situation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. The first response is that the natural, healthy response to being attacked is to flee. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, 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 I want to honor that we are humans um, and that we do have. Um, responses that are um, wired for survival, 
right? So there's nothing wrong with getting away from somebody who consistently is like that. So that's my first response. Um, my second response is that this, this has to do, I, I, my perspective about life is that I'm, I'm really interested in competence. Like when I work with people as a therapist, my phrase to them that I often use is that competence trumps insight 90% of the time. And what I mean by that is that you can rely more on skill than you can on insight. Like if you know that you can do something and you can consistently do it, then you have confidence in that ability and you can rely on that. So what we're talking about really are competency-based skills. So a competency-based skill is dealing with difficult people. And there are lots of different kinds of difficult people. I, I, so just to visualize for a second, take yourself outside of Spirit Rock sitting in the CMH, most of my work is in the boardroom with CEOs and people who are very difficult people generally. They're you know, power hungry and competitive and you know, not generally people who you'd say, oh, I really want to spend a quiet evening with you. Um, but as is true with all people, that there is other sides to them and that they're not just difficult people. And so I've had to really hone my skill at dealing with many, many different varieties of difficult people. Um, the first level of training for me is in um, just basic conflict resolution. And I recommend if you've never heard of the book, Crucial Conversations, I recommend there's two books that are brilliant and either one of them are worth it. One is called Crucial Conversations and it's um, by Joe Grenny, G-R-E-N-N-Y. So mm, Crucial Conversations is based on 20 years of social psychological research and it's competency-based. So it's a six-step method for working with situations where three things are present. Conversation's important, there's a high degree of negative emotion that's present, and the difference of opinion. And then the other book is called Difficult Conversations, and it's based on the Harvard Negotiations Project that um, was the basis for the book by Yuri and Fisher, Getting to Yes. Very, very good book, very, and Difficult Conversations, excellent. So, so you know, when, when I work with a client who's interested in this, we'll start at the very beginning, read the book. Extract from the book what is important to you. Find a case study where you want to practice it. So that's the second level. The third level is much more esoteric. Um, the third level is since there's no self, there's no problem. <laughs> so I'll give you an example. Um, we, uh, we have a neighbor and she's very young and she's decided that she's going to make parking um, in, our, in our street a problem. And um, she's been really creative in finding ways to make something out of nothing. And um, there have been a couple of incidents where uh, she built up a case um, about what we were doing. And, um, and as with anybody who builds a case, they know they're right. 
And so um, at one point last week, um, I offered to engage her in a conversation about this. And I'd done a little practicing using the crucial conversations methodology. And um, she came towards me looking like a bulldog. And she spent about three or four minutes describing to me what a, a horrific human being I was. You know, basically, you know, you're a communications expert and look at what you've done. And this is, you know, and just one point after another, she was so quick. I mean, never tangle with a 22-year-old girl. <laughs> Guys are a lot easier because they'll just, you know, slug you or um, they'll go silent. But she was brilliant verbally with violence. And um, I, I said to my wife afterwards that the miracle of mindfulness was that all throughout her diatribe, I just remained completely neutral. I had, nothing arose for me about wanting to get back or get even. The only thing that I tried to do was to see if I could build an agreement about the future. And that was fruitless. But, you know, you do your best, and then over time, maybe something else emerges. But those are three. I think, you know, if you just keep on practicing mindfulness, you tend to disappear. Like as a, a, a separate ego who has, a view in, who has views and opinions and makes sure that those views and opinions end up being the right ones. One of the principles in crucial conversations is <clears throat> um, tell your story, but don't try to project onto them what their story is. And so she was telling me basically what her story was, and there were things in what she said that I could say, oh yeah, I can really see how you would have that point of view. <clears throat> okay, let's let um, one last question, and then we'll do an exercise. I'm sorry, I don't know how important it is actually, but um, I find that um, visual distraction is a real challenge for me. So that if I really want to listen well, or uh, I close my eyes. But obviously, there are all kinds of conversations that you have in life where you really can't quit listening to somebody. <laughs> I mean, you know, it just mm -hmm. doesn't feel right when you're in dialogue with somebody. So I was just curious to know whether anybody else has struggled with that and whether they have a technique for, you know, dealing with visual distraction in the course of a conversation. Mm, thank you. Anybody want to respond? Yeah, please. Well, I'm a very visual person, and I get visually sort of almost overloaded. So in some situations, to hear, like if I'm listening to music, I have to close my eyes. But you can't do that very well in conversation. So what's easier is if I'm familiar with the person, then it's not quite so difficult. But in the initial part, it's a little bit. I just, I just notice it and just try to accept that that's part of how my brain works. And then um, just open to... Mm -hmm. So mindful and then inclusion. 
ていう。Yeah, so let me build on that because that's what we're going to do in this last exercise. So <clears throat>、um, you may know that in Buddhism, that, the, that、um, the foundation of the Buddhist teachings can really be described as kind of three legs of a triangle. One is sila, which is ethics, being a moral person, not acting in ways that are harmful. The second, we're very familiar, which is mindfulness, insight. The third is called concentration or、um, samatha or shamadhi practice. And it's less taught generally because it used to be considered that it was only appropriate for the monks,、um, that it was a, an advanced training. But concentration is becoming more and more a part of the Dharma in the West, as some, of, some people who are sitting in the back of the room just finished a nine day retreat in concentration.、Um, Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So、um, it is something that we're beginning to see emerging. And in listening, there's a balance between being mindful, which we've really explored, and concentration. And so what we're going to be doing is the, what I'm calling the short leash approach to listening, which is give no quarter to your mind. Do not allow it to go off into flights of fancy or you know, musings. Just come right back. And what you're going to be coming back to is one of two things. Either you're going to come back to the breath, or you're going to come back to inquiry. And you're going to go、um, get back into the dyads that you were in just a moment ago, so you get a chance to deepen a little bit with the, the person you were with. You can pick the same question that you were working on if you want to take it deeper, or you can pick any of the other three. So, as the communicator, you'll pick one of those four. The listener is going to do one of two things. Either they're going to listen and pay attention to the breath, or they're going to inquire and use. How many of you know when you're being curious? You know, you know when you're being curious, right? So, what I'd like you to do is conjure up curiosity and bring it into the inquiry. So, a couple of questions that are really good in inquiry questions that you can't fail with are tell me, tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. Another is, could you clarify that? Like, if, you, if they're saying something that's a little bit vague to you and you don't really know much about it, you can say, could you clarify that? Or you could say, is there more that you want to say about that? So, those are questions that encourage people to deepen and broaden. Okay, so get in your dyads. Next one we do is deep listening and conflict. Yeah, it's obvious there's a real interest in it. And not enough time to get to it. Okay, so、um, the last person who was the listener is now the communicator, right? And pick,、um, as the communicator, pick the one that you want to work on. And as the listener, awareness of breath or inquiry, go. Could you repeat that third thing after can you clarify that?、Um, can you say more about that? 
Okay, go. 